and we're going to get by the end of this morning to Revelation chapter 14 and it's going to be a great blessing and a great relief to see the Lamb standing on Mount Zion because we've been going through Revelation and it's been you know looking at some pretty grim pictures because that's what Revelation is remember it's the picture book and we're just turning the page looking at the picture learning the lesson and we've had some awful pictures we've seen the dragon Satan the ruler of this world attacking and he's attacking those who keep the commandments of God it says and have the testimony of Jesus Christ he doesn't want the light he hates it and you've got the way he works he uses his emissaries on earth doesn't he pictured in those two ugly beasts and their dreadful behavior in chapter 13 and you find that uh, you know it's ghastly pictures we've been, been looking at really earth in a tragic state a tragic state of twisting twisted rampaging evil black and dark and powerful and destructive that first beast remember an absolute brute ugly blasphemous cruel persecuting, destructive, full of hate, lusting for power. Horrible, isn't it? That's the devil in the raw. Then there was a second beast, and he was a bit more suave, if you remember. But we saw that the great thing about him was he was Satan using deceit. He looked like a lamb. Yeah, but he wasn't when he spoke. He certainly wasn't. And deceit we spent last week on, and you must take that with you. Keep it in your mind. Don't be deceived. By one masterstroke of deceit, Satan actually brought the whole of humanity down under his control and under his thumb. By one man, sin entered the world. By sin, death. Death passed upon all men, for all sinned. And the devil was very, very successful because he told them a lie and they believed the lie that they could discern good and evil for themselves without the authority of God doing it for them. We've seen that that same deceit continues right through today's society that Martin has been drawing our attention to because people have exchanged the truth of God for the lie that they know what is good and evil and they do not need God and they would cast God off. And nothing changes. In the last days, Paul warns us in Timothy that evil, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse deceiving and being deceived. Worse and worse. And the bad thing about that was, we noticed, that they had a form of godliness. They are even in the realm of the church, using all that they have, the craftiness of deceit, to deceive God's people, let alone those that are not God's people. We even looked at the subject of prophecy, just touched it in Matthew 24, when the disciples asked, when shall be the sign of thy coming again? And straight away the Lord Jesus started to answer them by saying, be, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by the world events, by men who chase after signs and wonders, by thinking you can come to conclusions as to when I'm actually going to come. Don't be deceived. And then we said about the issues today of, you know, there's no consequences. Well, Paul says, be, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So it goes on. God is a God of consequences. And I was actually if you'll just pardon me mentioning, but in, you know, your mind gets sort of blown away at times where you see people supporting things so obviously wrong and obviously evil that what's ever come over them to actually do it. And then you find people calling themselves Christians or Christian leaders who are doing exactly the same thing. And you say, well, what's going wrong when scripture is clear on a subject 
Why would somebody saying they're a Christian override the authority of Scripture, you know, virtually say, well, we know what's good and evil for ourselves. What would make someone who knows their Bible in any shape or form actually do those sorts of things? Why would a church want to fly a rainbow flag? Please tell me. In the name of God, they will do it. Because they have a God who is a God of love and a gospel of love. And it's a whole message of inclusive, being inclusive, not exclusive, of being non-judgmental. So it goes on. As the Bible says, neither the fornicator, nor the idolater, nor the adulterer, nor the effeminate, nor the abusers of themselves with mankind, nor the thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkard, nor the revilers, nor the extortionate, shall inherit the kingdom of God. You think, but how could that get twisted? Well, did you notice that that list I gave you, I didn't give you the opening remark, which was, be not deceived. Can you believe that Christian people, in the name of God and love, would endorse that kind of thing? Because they think it's contrary to the God of love, the gospel of inclusion. Whereas in actual fact, the issue isn't the gospel, the issue isn't inclusion, the issue isn't being non-judgmental. The issue is God, the creator, says certain things. He says what's good and he says what is evil. And as far as the true believer is concerned, that ends it. That ends it. So you sort of go back and look at that and you feel, whoa, you know, almost overwhelmed at the power of darkness and the the sheer forces of evil. And you realise that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're not. We're against the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. And against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's where we're at. And then you think, oh, this is getting worse. What's this book of Revelation? It's got black everywhere. Then you turn to chapter 14. Isn't that very beautiful how it starts, eh? This is a lovely vision coming on the screen. And I looked... Ah, and I looked, and lo, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion. Thank you, Phil, for reading that psalm this morning. We'll be touching it again. Beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. And I looked, and lo, and lo is the idea of behold. In other words, this is an amazing sight that wants to draw people's attention to it. And he says, I want you to look and behold the lamb on Mount Zion. Don't look at earth. No, we're not looking at the beast with two horns that looks like a lamb. We are looking at the lamb himself and he's standing. Get the position there? Is though standing in strength, poised for action, surrounded by the redeemed. He will move out one day, shortly as the chapter unfolds. He will move out and he will take control and he will bring down judgment upon a sinful world and he will destroy the devil himself before the book is over. You see, you've got to get that vision. You've got to do what the apostle says to Hebrews. You run with endurance the race that's set before you. How? By looking unto Jesus. Daily looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith. If you just look at the world and you just look at the turmoil, I tell you, your hands will hang down. Your, as it were, puff will run out. You will not be able to keep going. So he says to the Hebrews, Hebrew believers, looking unto Jesus. 
It's like Paul writing in the Colossians where he says quite clearly, seek those things that are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Just get that picture going in your mind again. Start using your mind not just to think words and facts. Think pictorially. Go back to the faith of the little child who sees things in pictures and see him sitting on the right hand of God. You set your mind, you see, on the things that are above, not on the things that are upon the earth. For what will happen? You'll be overwhelmed by the evil that's around you. And you set your mind on the things that are above. Because when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall he also appear with him in glory. And that's exactly what you're getting here, a picture of in Revelation 14. The Lamb standing on Mount Zion, surrounded by those whom he has redeemed. Isn't that beautiful? Fellow believer, take the picture as the prophecy of God for the present time in which we are and let him speak to your heart the joy of what lies ahead upon Mount Zion with the Lamb who has redeemed us with his own precious blood. You see, Mount Zion, that's the place, and we go back to it constantly, where God says he has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion. It's the place where he has declared the decree as to who shall reign. Meanwhile, on earth, yes, they're raging. They're in tumultuous rage, imagining impossible schemes, gathering together and plotting. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together in their various conferences as they pool their ideas in order that they might turn against the Lord and against his anointed. For they're saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We won't have this man to rule over us. No, we know what is good and evil. We will stamp it out. He that sits in the heaven shall laugh. You know, a lot of stupid things are said today about God having a sense of humor and some of them are quite irreverent because we seem to imagine he's a man like we are. He, when he sits in the heavens and he laughs, it says here he's laughing in absolute derision that a puny creature which he has made will ever smash the purposes which he has planned or that any hand will ever be uplifted, be they joined together in unison in a, the multitudes or even universally and ever overthrow the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. The one whom the Lord has set as king upon that holy hill and he has set it by decree. You see, we're looking at Mount Zion and it's, it's the place where God has set his king in Psalm, Psalm 2. And then actually, if you trace its history, it was really originally a Canaanitish fortress. And as it was taken over by the people of God, it provided protection. Isn't that lovely? For, many, for centuries, literally, it provided protection for Israel. You see, David came that day and he captured Zion. And he said it became the city of the king. And that fortress for protection under the rule of the warrior king David, the man, the king who never lost a battle, never lost a battle. That place, Mount Zion, he took as his own. And it was a great place of protection and defense for the people of God. 
Later on, it was the place where Solomon built the house of God, the temple, the place where God would dwell in all his glory between the cherubim. Beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. And you see the spirit of the thing, the picture of the thing, the, the, re the meaning of the thing is as real to us today as it will be to those in the future, as it was to those in the past. Zion's a wonderful place. Behold, the Lamb, he's on Mount Zion, the King who is anointed, the protection that is afforded, the victory that is final, and the very presence of God as a refuge. This is Mount Zion. Look away for a moment from earth and all its turmoil, and look at Mount Zion, and be still, my soul, for God is on your side. Very beautiful, isn't it? I tell you, I've enjoyed this. I've enjoyed this very much, and I hope you'll enjoy it too. It's given me songs in the night, if you like, if you really want to know. But you know, in Hebrews, I captured something of the feeling of the apostle as he wrote to those Hebrew believers. And they, you know, they, they're doing it really tough. The persecution's terrible. Their, their hands are hanging down. And then the apostle in chapter 12, as he writes, comes up with a beautiful, beautiful picture. And I used to wonder why it was there. And I think I'm just getting a glimpse of it, you know. There they are being overwhelmed. There they are thinking of God. Maybe they should just go back. They're even wondering how they can go forward. <coughs> and you wouldn't blame them for the state they were in and the situation they found themselves and then the apostle says this as he writes, but ye are come to Mount Zion. There it is. The king anointed, the protection afforded, the victory that's final, the very presence of God as a refuge. You come to Mount Zion, fellow Christians, he says. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, an innumerable company of angels, to the festive gathering, the general assembly. I like that festive gathering. See, there's, there's triumph, there's song, there's anticipation to the festive gathering, the church of the firstborn, which are registered in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, those thousands upon thousands who surround him at Mount Zion, redeemed by that precious blood. For it is Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. If you can get that in your heart this morning, if you can just let God's word shine into your soul this morning, I tell you, you'll get a vision, you'll get a view, and it's such a view that no matter what situation you're in at the moment, it'll cheer the pilgrim, and it'll make your spirit sing. That's what it'll do. They're singing on Mount Zion, singing like you've never heard before. We'll see this later on as we move through. But let me read to you verses 1 to 5. So did you, learn, you know that you, I'm not making this up and I pray that as we read it, you know, the, God himself, the Spirit of God would just give you the enablement to see this vision because it's a behold vision. It's a low, a low vision. Look. And lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand having his father's name written in their foreheads. Now, just, just get it clear. And lo, what do you see? 
144,000 surrounding the lamb. No, you don't. That's back to front. It's not the way it's written. What you see is the lamb. Then you see the 144,000. See, he, almost, he must always take center stage. Christ's there. Get him in your vision. All right? That's the order. He's supreme amongst all. Those 144,000, they surround him. Now listen. Now listen as you're looking. I heard a voice from heaven. The voice of many waters. The voice of a great thunder. You say, this is deep, double bass, strong. The no, the sound is full of swell. And then you hear the voice of harpers harping with their harps. That instrument of heaven, the sweetest instrument of all, comes in with the finesse of beauty and tingling that's music to your ears, yet it blends perfectly with the voice of the thunder and the sound of the water. And as you're listening to these combinations, it's like a glorious introduction. Verse 3, they sing. Choir strikes up. And it's a new song. They're singing it before the throne, the four beasts, the elders. And you say, what are they singing? I'm going to listen to the words. Like going to the Messiah, you know. Hey, the music comes. And then the singers open their mouths and the sound of the word of God comes out and you're thrilled by it. This is even better. This is even better. We're not in the Royal Albert Hall, you know. We're at a far better auditorium than the world has ever seen. We're on Mount Zion. That's where we are. The acoustics are beautiful. And the music is perfection. And the harmony is unblemished. And the symphony of sound is all blending together to lift the heart of the believer up above the present situation. Let the beast do what he will. Let Satan and the dragon do what they will. We're still there. Say, lo, there's a lamb, and he's upon Mount Sion. Read on. And they sing the song. No one could learn it but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which are not defiled with women. They are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men. Notice the descriptions. We'll deal with them in another time. Being firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. There you are. You must have got something of the picture in your mind now. You must have got something of the sound of what's going on in your thinking now. But go back to the center stage. And we've got the lamb standing. He's the prominent figure, you see. And that posture of standing is just beautiful to see. I mean, we've read through the Gospels before we've got this far. And John has written to us about the lamb, hasn't he? He said he looked on Jesus as he walked, the lamb as he walked. And he said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I mean, I wonder, I don't think the Lord Jesus stood out particularly to the natural eye amongst men, wearing the general dress of his day. But if you actually look at the context, you'll actually find it's quite likely that the Lord Jesus has just returned from the temptations, just returned. In the fullness of his baptism, 
When the heavens opened and said, this is my beloved son, he then went into the wilderness, into the temptations, and coming back, it would seem, John looks and sees him coming. And you think of this, the Lord Jesus has just gone there and done battle with Satan, where every one of us would have fallen, as we heard this morning, every one of us. And he comes back unsullied, untainted, still a pure and perfect sacrifice. And he says, look, despite that encounter, behold the Lamb of God, as he looked upon him as he walked. You can read through the scriptures and you see the lamb in his meekness. They led him as a lamb to the slaughter. It says they took Jesus and, and they led him away. I, I've often just tried to get the picture of that. I mean, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the creator of the universe. How hast thou humbled thyself to be taken, led by thy creatures? Think about that. And you follow the leading. And when they came to the place called Calvary, <coughs> there they crucified him and he's walking in the one vision he is in meekness in the second vision he is in absolute weakness for he was crucified in weakness and you see the lamb the perfect sacrifice hanging on a tree and then you go to the book of revelation and you see him in the midst of the throne and you say thank god for that through weakness and defeat he won that meat and crown trod all our foes beneath his feet by being trodden down now here he is on Mount Zion, standing in the pose of some authority and power, and he is ready to move. He is claiming his own and acknowledging them. And from here on in the book, he's going to move on to finally execute judgment. And it's a lovely picture now. As we look at the Lord Jesus and we see him surrounded by the redeemed. Never separated, surrounded. The redeemed are numbered, they are sealed. You notice that? Remember that? They were numbered, they are sealed, and they sing. Isn't that lovely? The redeemed, numbered, sealed, and sing. The number they give is an exact number in this case. 144,000, not 144,001, not 139,999. Exact figure. You see, it's like this. If you go back to chapter 7, you'll actually see this picture there of these getting sealed on the earth. You remember? He says, just stop to the angel. You hold back the judgment until the people of God, the servants of God, are actually sealed. And he sealed them all and, not, and Satan couldn't move and until God had done his work and 144,000 were sealed in chapter 7. We've just been reading a few chapters since there and we got to this awful chapter 13 and we've seen... I mean, the devil spent every ounce of his energy doing what? Trying to get the sealed. That's what he's doing. He wants to destroy the people of God. And what happens is this. <laughs> we get to chapter 14. There, on Mount Sion, beautiful for situation, the city of the living God, the king is set, but on Mount Sion, there's 144,000 still. Not one of them is lost. They are all there, the sealed of God, his personal possession, the Lord's particular people. And the lesson is this, no matter what comes our way, if God be for us, who can be against us? Fellow Christian today, whatever situation you're in, and as the devil will attack you personally, it's just as well as he attack a nation nationally. And he will attack 
of the people of God universally. So he will come to you personally. Get it into your heart. Get it into your soul. There is coming a day of glorification. And by the grace of God, you will persevere and you will be there. We have a God who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Keep us from falling. Satan may be what he is, and he may do what he does. And indeed, Romans 8 says he reckons us as sheep for the slaughter. You know, that one's going to the abattoir this week. That one's going next week. That old flock over there will have them finished before the month is out. They'll all be led as sheep to the slaughter. We've marked them out, he says. But oh no, it's not like that. He, you see, he might want that. He would propose that. But God is on the throne, the Mount Zion. He's reigning. And what happens? Tribulation or distress, nakedness, persecution, peril, sword, nothing. Nothing shall separate us. Nothing. And in that final day, fellow Christian, we'll be there, despite ourselves. We'll be there, despite the devil. We'll be there... Praise the Lord. We'll all be there. Amen to that. Lift up your hearts. Run with patience the race set before you. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. You see, these people, they are there and they are numbered. Yes, none of them lost. And they are sealed. Now, where the seal is the mark of possession. I'm going to just look at this other thoughts in it, but just that. Sealed of the Lord. What does it say in Ephesians? Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession. In other words, the day you got saved, God made you one of his children and marked you out as part of his family and said, you belong to me, and he put his spirit into you. And the presence of God's Holy Spirit right now at this moment in the life of a believer is a proof of the fact, is a promise that he's made, a seal that he's put on that person that will be there and will mean in the final day of redemption, God will acquire that possession for himself because it belongs to him. You know, one of the simplest, very simple illustrations I heard of sealing was from a Canadian preacher and it was in the good old days when they used to send the lumberjacks up into the forest. You remember, bring the great mighty trees down with a crash. And what they used to do once they felled a tree, they would put a seal on it, a mark on it. And if you work for a different company or you were a different enterprise, you put your own seal on it. And then you remember they used to take them to the river. They used that as the means of transport, the old lumberjack days. And they throw them in the river to float them down, sometimes right to the coast. But down at the coast, there'd be another representative. They'd actually be the owner, the representative of the owner of that tree that got felled. And they'd be looking at the logs as they came through, and then they would, what would they find? They'd find the log with the right mark on it, say, that's mine. I tell you, in a coming day, fellow Christian, that's what the Lord's going to say about you. You're mine. In that day when he comes to make up his jewels. This is so encouraging, it's so uplifting that... It's no wonder the next outburst you get from these 144,000, what is it? They sing. Of course they sing. And if you will look at Mount Zion, if you will see it in all its beauty and meaning, 
You will see it as the place of God reigning in Christ, as the place of divine protection, as the place of the presence of God and the purposes of God and the destiny for the child of God. I tell you, you'll sing. You'll sing. And, and get the picture of the singing. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's not just a, a song on its own. As we've, I've already helped try to draw the picture as we read it together. It's, it's the, the voice of God. The very voice of God himself. In power and strength. And the, the sweet instrument of heaven, the harp. And, and then the, the redeemed sing. And they sing a song. It says that no one can learn. Now get that picture again. It's the voice of God, it's the sound of the harp, it's the song of the redeemed. It's a magnificent blending, a glorious oratorio, a, a divine sympathy and a song. Spontaneous song. No, it doesn't come from weeks of choir practice. No, it's not like that. It didn't come because they all got taught it. This is spontaneous singing that comes from experience. The experience of redemption on that blessed day when the Lord put a new song into your heart, even praise unto our God. Do you not remember it? Have you grown so old? Or have you wandered so far from the Lord you've forgotten about the marvel of the day of salvation when the fullness of it all actually dawned on you. You were set free from sin. You were purchased by precious blood and you belong to the Lord. Mind you, if you've not had that experience, you can't sing. Sorry, you're out of the choir. <laughs> you can't learn this song. No, no, no. It's spontaneous. Nobody can sing it who hasn't known the experience of the Lamb on Mount Zion, the Redeemer, and become one of the redeemed. You haven't got the new song. You remember Israel when they came out of Egypt? Now, that was a tremendous event. It was a terrific event. The Passover night, the blood that was shed, they were redeemed by precious blood. Sheltered, purchased, and redeemed. They leave Egypt, and they get to the Red Sea. And I mean, probably the truth of it hadn't really dawned on them. They were actually free after 400 years of slavery. 400 years of slavery, and suddenly they're free. You think, well, this is amazing. And then they get to the Red Sea, and on the, on the Red Sea, they're pursued by the enemy who wants them back. He says, they're mine. I'm not letting them go. God says, I just purchased them with precious blood. And they get over the other side of the Red Sea and they look back and they see all their enemies. What? Dead on the seashore. Dead on the seashore. And the reality of the fact that the power of Egypt, the power of captivity, which is the power of sin, has been finally, fully totally broken, dawns on them. And what does it say? Then sang Moses and Israel this song, a song of sheer magnificence, a song of absolute triumph and victory. They knew in their heart that Pharaoh and his chariots would never be able to get them again because they're dead. They're drowned. And as they stood on the shore in safety, on the other side, they looked back and saw their enemies. Where? It says, dead on the seashore. Fellow believer this morning, I want you to sing that song like you've never sung it before. And please, God, if you haven't learnt it, may God have mercy on you. And go and ask him to tell you how to sing by making you one of his own and being redeemed by the precious blood. 
Meanwhile, we'll, we'll stand for a moment and, and we'll join in what we see in chapter 15, the, that sea of glass. It's actually a crystal sea, that lovely. You get a sea and you make a, a glass sea and I tell you what, there won't be a ripple on the pond, not a ripple. It'll be calm, see, so beautifully calm. And it's before the throne and the redeemed are there, you know, in chapter 15, we'll see that. They're there, the people of God are there and they're singing the song. What song? The song of Moses and of the Lamb. You think, that, you think Israel didn't burst their lungs when they sang on the banks of the Red Sea to see their enemies dead on the seashore? I reckon you could have blown a carotid. No trouble at all. But I tell you what, <laughs> I tell you what, that's singing the song of Moses. What about singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb? You get it? Oh, fellow believers, when we go to sing the songs of God up higher, that's the point. In the full blazing reality of what Mount Zion means, I tell you, we'll sing. We'll sing like we never sang before. But in the meantime, in anticipation, in the joy of our redemption, I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. I will not be looking back overwhelmed by the world in which I live, Oh, it's overwhelming. It's enough to drown you. It is. But we'll not be thinking that the forces of evil will ultimately prevail and all I do is in vain and what's the point for I can't get there? No, no, no. Lo and behold, upon Mount Zion there stands. And we look forward. And that hymn came to me in the early hours of this morning. When we reach our peaceful dwelling on the strong eternal hills and our praise to him is swelling who the vast creation fills. When the path of prayer and duty and affliction all are trod and we wake and see the beauty of our Saviour and our God. Oh, twill be a glorious morrow to a dark and stormy day when we smile upon our sorrow and the storms have passed away. Amen. God bless us in his word this morning. Let us pray. We bow, Father, gratefully this morning, for we have seen things that are wonderful. We have read words that are beautiful. We have read words of hope and encouragement. And we prayed as we came this morning, Lord, show us your glory. We are thankful. We are deeply grateful and that little touch of divine presence and a sense of mine eyes have seen the beauty of the coming of the Lord. So Father, part us with that divine blessing, we pray. We commit ourselves into the hand of one who is our God, the God who is able to keep us from falling, to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to our only God and Saviour, be the honour and the glory and the dominion and the power forevermore. Amen.